Father Aaron Williams with another podcast. If you like listening to these podcasts, please subscribe and leave a good rating on iTunes. Also, share them with your friends and check out the other great podcasts available through the Diocese of Jackson Office of Vocations. Just visit jacksonpriest.com. That's jacksonpriest with an S dot com. Here is my homily for the 23rd Sunday of the year, given on the 8th of September, 2019, at the Parish Church of St. Joseph in Greenville, Mississippi. The gospel this weekend is one of those that when you hear it, you do a bit of a double-take, right? If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now all of us who assemble here week by week claim to be disciples of the Master. So if Christ is going to give us a criterion for discipleship, if anyone doesn't do X, Y, or Z, they can't be my disciple, then we are going to have to face that stipulation and understand what it means for us. St. Luke's words really have a lot to say both about the obligations of Christian discipleship, but more than that, he is telling us a good bit about our Lord. You see, the center of this whole statement is the identity of Christ. Bishop Robert Barron makes this point, that Christ is saying something here that you wouldn't hear from another religious leader. Unless you love me more than X, Y, Z, then you can't be my disciple. Think about that line of thinking. It doesn't work with other religious figures, does it? Moses, for instance, he might say, unless you love the commandments of God, the law, the prophets, etc., more than all these things. But the stipulation of Christ is on a personal level. He's forcing us to make a decision about who we think he really is. Think about other lines in scripture. We blow over a lot of our Lord's claims to forgive sins in the gospel, claims that get him and a lot of criticism from the scribes and the Pharisees. But really, though, that's a big claim, isn't it, to claim you're divine, that you really do have power to forgive sins. C.S. Lewis makes this point in his Mere Christianity. He writes, Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. What Lewis goes on to say, and what we really need to pull out from St. Luke's Gospel this morning, is that the commands of Christ demand a real and an active choice. So before we even go on to try to decipher why Christ is seemingly telling us to hate all the good people in our lives, we're going to have to deal with the fact that at the most basic level, the Lord is drawing the line in the sand. It's either you are in or you're out. There's no room for a halfway commitment. And it's a commitment to Jesus Christ as God and as Lord of our lives. I really couldn't put it better than Lewis, and so I'm going to give a summary Uh, that he gives in his own point, uh, in his own book. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Christ is not one religious figure among many, and I know that most Christians don't make that claim positively in that way. But there's a lot of Christians, especially today, who passively accept the notion that Christ is just one of many voices for this sort of common good, Christian-sounding sort of living. I know when I was coming up in CCD classes in the 90s, there was a sort of popular movement in Catholicism that day to try to emphasize the moral unity we have with other religions by praising the good sayings of others. So it wasn't uncommon when I was little to hear my CCD teachers talking about the good sayings of Mahatma Gandhi or the Dalai Lama. There's many people that misinterpret the goal of the ecumenical movement, for example, as simply appreciating the various ways different Christian communities express the faith. And so you start to see these ecumenical gatherings and prayer services that are really more of ecumenical talent shows than they are Christian worship. The point is that if we're going to receive a statement from Christ as strong as this, then the only possibility is that he is making this claim in order to provoke within us a choice. Either Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the most blessed trinity, and therefore is due all our worship, reverence, obedience, and devotion, or he is not, and we can go about our way. But there's no middle ground. And that's really the point of the usage of his word hate here. Jesus is making use of a very Semitic, a very Jewish way of speaking, which doesn't translate well in our English ears. The, 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 the sufficient meaning of the phrase is that Jesus is making a comparison of loves. St. Matthew, in his parallel account of the story, tries to smooth over this difficulty in the language by rearranging the sentence to say, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And that's just it. The point is that nothing, even the good and most lovable things in our lives, can be loved more than we love God. The real implication of the usage of the word hate here is to make this statement definitive. This is not a light commandment. Anytime we commit ourselves more to anything or anyone greater than our commitment to Christ, then we're in the wrong. And so here's the second part of St. Luke's passage. Our Lord says, Which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there's enough for its completion? Essentially, he's saying that in facing this all-or-nothing stipulation on discipleship, you're going to have to literally put thought into what that sort of commitment means to you. It's not enough to feel some calling or to do something good for the Lord or to respond to him in some way, and then once we seem to have made that step, then to go about the rest of our business. One of the things we do when we prepare couples for marriage is to give them a sort of personal inventory called the focused test. And each party takes this test so that they can perhaps uncover areas for discussion that they haven't considered before. There's a question on the test that stands out to me because it really does underscore all of what we've just discussed. It's written, agree or disagree, my commitment to my job will sometimes outweigh my religious obligations. The more I work with young couples and young people, the more I realize just how much of a sort of accepted principle this line of thinking really is. It even translates into one of the reasons why you see young couples getting married at such an older age now. 
A lot of times they want to put so much effort into their professional career, getting a strong start, making sure they have a really strong and steady flow of income and network success, etc. And only after that will they have the energy to focus on other things like Jesus or marriage. That's been one of the hardest things for me to see in marriage prep or vocation work or simply in speaking with people today when people seem to be making real strides in the spiritual life, they're praying every day, they're going to Mass, they're frequenting confession, they are living a more and more moral life. But then some opportunity in the professional world presents itself to them, and they recognize it as a blessing from God, but then it absorbs their focus. They stop having time for daily prayer. Maybe their job doesn't allow them to go to daily Mass, and so they excuse themselves for setting that aside, reminding themselves that only miss on, ma- missing Mass on Sunday is a mortal sin. But then the day comes when that commitment arises on a Sunday, and they skip Mass. They stop going to confession. They start sinking back into their immoral tendencies. All of this because anyone who loves the good and most lovable things in the world more than Christ cannot be his disciple. Christ doesn't say that we will really just have a hard time being his disciple. He doesn't say that we will be a disciple, but we'll need some help along the way. No, that's not a question of haves. Anyone who loves the good and the most lovable things in the world more than Christ cannot be a Christian.